um, which is great. Um, welcome to the National Library of Australia. Uh, I'm Marcus Hughes, uh, Director of Indigenous Engagement here at the Library. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging Australia's First Nations people, the First Australians as the traditional owners and custodians of this land, and give respect to the Elders past and present, and through them, to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Thank you all for attending this afternoon's presentation by Professor Kate Fulger, um, a National Library of Australia Fellow for 2021. Kate is a Professor of History at the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. She studies the 18th century world, particularly the British Empire and the many Indigenous societies that it encountered. Her interests in comparative Indigenous history focus on the Eastern Pacific, the American Southeast, and the Eora of today's Australia. Her latest publication, The Warrior, The Voyager, and The Artist, Three Lives in an Age of Empire, won both the New South Wales General History Prize and the Douglas Stewart Prize for Nonfiction. Kate's fellowship research at the National Library has formed part of a major reconsideration of several key Indigenous negotiators with European agents throughout the Pacific world in the period between 1750 and 1820. Taking a new approach to challenge common settler understandings of historic Indigenous agency and contexts. It situates its central figure, Ben Long, among a group of similarly iconic Indigenous negotiators around the Pacific world, including mediators from Tahiti, Hawaii and Nootka. Today's lecture will focus on Benelong, who despite having widespread renown, is still misunderstood by many. Please join me in welcoming Kate Fuller to tell us her story. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and uh, particularly thank you to the staff here at the library. I've had a fantastic fellowship here. It's a wonderful way to uh, come back to Canberra. Um, I've just been living in Sydney for 15 years and moved back to Canberra now via this fellowship. So it's been a fantastic experience. Um, and I've also, I have to say, just tried to learn to from the AV people that I should stay put uh, rather than wander around. I've had 10 years of lecturing undergraduates, which makes me wander around, keep everyone awake. Um, but I have to stay put here for, for, the, um, for the AV needs. Um, so uh, you'll have to keep yourselves awake. Um, and, uh, and I will have to try and remember to use the mouse as a pointer if I want to show something on the screen. Um, I do hope that I'm going to be loud enough. I'm going to rely on, say, Hancock, put, put your hand up if you can't hear me properly. I just can project a bit more. All right, I'd like to formally begin my paper by acknowledging that today we meet on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands. I'd also like to say that much of this research was undertaken while I was living um, on Wongal land, uh, where Benelong was born, uh, and also while I was working on Wallamadigal land, where Benelong died. I felt very acutely the sense of Indigenous place and the history of land loss when thinking about Benelong. And if that's the one thing I share with you today in this talk, I will be pleased. In addition, may I add an acknowledgement of all the Indigenous people in the room today. I uh, thank them for coming, thank them for having me. 
You will not be surprised to hear that this paper will discuss uh, Aboriginal people who have passed and the presentation will display images of Aboriginal people who have passed. Uh, so as, as, as you've heard from Marcus, my, my fellowship at the library has focused on the latter part of uh, Benelong's life. It fits into a larger project, actually, a, a sort of a separate, second larger project of mine, which seeks to revise the history of the relationship between Benelong and Arthur Philip. This is going to entail writing uh, kind of a new account of Philip's full life, which surveys his full 50 years of naval service. And it's also going to mean expanding our sense of the full life of Benelong, who lived roughly between 1764 and 1813. Now, Benelong is a name known to most of us, to most Australians, I think, uh, because of the five or six years he spent with the first colonists of New South Wales, uh, sort of from 1789 to 19, uh, 1795. What most people know about him is that he uh, formed a relationship with Governor Arthur Phillip. He was instrumental in brokering communications between the British and the Yorra and then he went to England with Philip. Until a few years ago, the consensus view of Benelong also was that he returned from England, 1795, um, uh, 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 and became a, a drunken kind of tragic figure. Now, those who followed recent work on Benelong might sense that this last part is not quite right, but few know exactly how or why it's not quite right. Today, I want to focus on that last uh, part of Benelong's life, and provide some texture or detail to the revised view. Now, I know I said in my abstract uh, that I was also going to discuss how this revised view of Benelong accords with several Pacific contemporary counterparts, and I know that's sort of partly um, as Marcus described my, my, my whole fellowship here. But I don't think I'm going to have time today to go into the Pacific kind of comparisons we might want to make, um, for which I apologise. But I would like to note that my initial suspicion that there was more to say about Benelong's end story, came about because I saw this so often in similar Pacifica stories. I am more usually a historian of the Pacific. There are many indigenous heroes of co colonial contact uh, during the era of Pacific exploration that are seen at first as being kind of canny and clever, but then somehow always ending up tragic and hopeless. For example, this is the tale of Mai, or Omai, uh, who sailed with Captain Cook and about whom I wrote in my, uh, in my last book. He was seen at first to be a feisty young man, but then was often characterised as later turning into a, quote, callow misfit because of his interactions with the British. It started to seem to me that there was something almost like a Benelong trope in colonial history, whereby Indigenous negotiators are celebrated as vehicles for possibility but then always mourned in the end because those dreams of possibility rarely pan out. Colonialism always surpasses them or destroys them. We may find if we reinvestigate our stories of these negotiators or if we apply new pressure to them, that this recurring trope is in fact just a feature of our approach to colonial history. If we start to think beyond conceptions of either colonial kind of achievement or colonial devastation, one or the other, then Indigenous life can become once again a complex thing, its own thing. Uh, it can indeed become a new centre for the histories of empire that we might write. 
So starting with the precept that the colonial project was always incomplete, Benelong's post-colony life can help to illuminate the ongoing Aboriginal presence around Port Jackson. It was a harmed presence, to be sure, but one that was adapting and maintaining and surviving. It was a presence that should be understood in its own terms and not just for the way that it, illum that it illuminates colonial past. So my plan here today is to first go over the more common kind of known story of Benelong to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then secondly, I'm gonna to turn to the lesser known last 18 years of Benelong's life from 1795 to his death aged nearly 50 in 1813. So Benelong was born around 1764, a member of the Wongal clan of the Yora, whose land runs roughly uh, from today's uh, Darling Harbour, right over to Baramata, or Parramatta, as we settlers like to call it. Um, it's not clear from the colonial records what the one of the Wongal uh, means exactly, but we do know that the Wongal were, clo were tied closely uh, and united with the two other main kind of saltwater peoples of the Yora, which is the Wallamadigal, uh, north of the river, and the Baramadigal. Um, the Wallamadigal, people of the Snapper, Baramadigal, people of the Eel. The Wongal were generally not so friendly, uh, not as friendly, with the Cadigal over here or the Camaragal up north, the, uh, the more eastern end um, parts of um, Port Jackson. Now, Benelong was known by many names. At one point, he told Philip that his preferred name was Wallarawari, but most people seem to call him a variation of Benelong. We think that he had at least three sisters, possibly four. This is the only, uh, well, it gets reiterated in some ways in other sources, but this is the, the kind of the founding source from William Dawes's notebooks, the kind of the, 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 the person on the first fleet who was most interested in linguistics. And he writes, as you can see, Benelong, and then there's three names after it, Warawea, Karangarang, and Warragong, who later sources confirm are his three sisters. Um, some scholars think that the name underneath it, Marangari, is a fourth sister, but it's not clear to me that, and you know, you can decide for yourself how William Dawes sets it out. It's not clear to me that the, that the, that the person on the last line belongs to the group on the, on the line before. So um, he has uh, three sisters at least. Benelong was an initiated man of around about 25 years of age by the time the first fleet sailed into Sydney Cove or Warane. We know this place was called Warane, uh, but we don't, they don't seem to be, um, they don't seem to have been any Warungal people. The historian Grace Carskin speculates that this was a sacred space deliberately left vacant by the nearby Cadigal, right, so it's really on Cadigal land. But Warane being a space possibly um, vacant because it was seen as, as sacred. This seems to me a key thing to keep in mind when we think about 11 huge ships of pale-skinned ruffians tipping into it. Many of us, I think, or I hope, know that uh, Benelong was captured by Philip's men on Philip's orders in 1789, right, the next year after their arrival, because Philip couldn't seem to broker any relationships with the hovering Yora any other way. Some of you may not know, however, that Benelong was not the first person to be kidnapped as a forced interlocutor. 
Philip's first captive was Arabanu of Gaiame, uh, the Gaiame people, uh, which is the Manly Cove area. Um, and partly called Manly uh, by Philip because of what he thought Arabanu was, Manly. <clears throat> um, Arabanu survived his captivity for six months, right from late 1788, um, for six months before he succumbed to the epidemic that ripped through the colony in April 89. Now, most people think that this epidemic was uh, an epidemic of smallpox, and it makes sense to me that it was. Um, as a non-expert on histories of disease, uh, but some have questioned the exact disease because it seems that only one colonist through all this time contracted it. Now in 2021, um, we know all about herd immunity, um, so this doesn't seem so very weird to me that the whites would have had immunity um, and the indigenous people did not. Um, however, I should just say that disease historians are still debating what the hell it was that came through Sydney Cove in 1789. What I can suggest is that we have not given nearly enough attention to how unbelievably horrific and consequential this epidemic was for the Yorra. Um, and really, and, and who better than the global citizens of 2021 to fully appreciate how the, the ramifications of an epidemic. Benelong later estimated that it had killed 50% of the people around the harbour. Some later experts believe this might be an underestimation. It almost entirely wiped out the catechol. Clearly, whatever it was, was brought in by the newcomers at Warani. So these facts, I think, should colour our understanding of why Benelong behaved the way he did when he was taken as the next captive um, as a replacement of Arabanu. In fact, his kidnapping... Um, oh, sorry, that's the uh, note for... Um, so his kidnapping um, takes place in November 89, uh, and it occurs with actually another man, uh, the Cadigal man, Colby. Colby soon escaped from his chains. Benelong, though, even after being released, chose to remain. Now, some historians have thought that this means that Colby was the dignified Aboriginal, and Benelong, therefore, must have been a suck-up. Right. But... I think that that background of epidemic should, should, should play here, right? As a category, Colby may well have known that he simply could not be spared from his clan. His male leaders were probably down to single-digit numbers uh, by this time. Benelong was from a slightly less affected clan and may have thought that it was wiser to stick close to these people who had brought such extraordinary disease. Benelong stayed with Philip for just over six months, the first time around. During this period, he forged a pretty workable relationship with Philip. A good-natured fellow, said the officer Gidley King of Benelong. Very intelligent. A merry fellow, said another officer. The literary, Watkin, uh, the, the literary Watkin Tench added, his powers of mind were certainly above mediocrity. He acquired knowledge both of our manners and our language. Now, what this cultural and linguistic skill produced was a lot of knowledge transfer, as we might call it today. The colonists started to learn more about uh, the country that they'd arrived in, um, as well as the devastation that their diseases had so far brought. Benelong started to learn about the newcomers' methods of communication, their sense of hierarchy, how much Philip loved being called Bianna, meaning father, and how much these folks seemed, uh, how little these folks seemed to know about how to feed themselves, as was becoming evident into 1790. 
in May 1790, um, all the same, despite this kind of growing relationship, Benelong suddenly took off. Our native has left us, wrote Philip sadly to Joseph Banks. I think that man's leaving us proves that nothing will make these people amends for the loss of their liberty. When the British saw Benelong again some four months later in Manly Cove, he seemed to them to have fallen on hard times. His body seemed now disfigured with scars. What the colonists saw as hard luck, however, was probably the sign of Benelong's rising esteem. He was now in a position to be in the front line of the blows issued in ritualised clan battles. Either way, what happened next may be the best known thing about Benelong, which is that he was present at the momentous spearing of Philip. Interestingly, given how Aboriginal history is usually told, or has been usually told, Benelong was not at the time, nor since really, ever thought to have perpetrated this act. But in reality, I think he probably did. He didn't throw the spear. That was by a northern-based Yora man called Willamaring. Uh, but he probably did arrange for Philip to be in Manly Cove, or Guyame, defenceless and eager for a reconciliation, um, and for Philip to be completely then surrounded by different Yora warriors. Benelong was the one who first carried the spear. He was the one who put it down carefully on the ground before Philip, and he was the one who knew the kinds of hand gestures that Philip would be making when he was advancing towards him. That Willemaring understood, the, uh, undertook this deed, you know, took, uh, took the signals that he'd been told and then um, uh, undertook it at the precise time that he did, I think suggests to me another sign of deference to Benelong, right? Um, Benelong didn't do all this as an act of aggression, but as a payback for his original kidnapping. Philip, who was desperate by then for a connection to the Yora, ordered no reprisals for this act. To Benelong, this meant that the slate was now well and truly wiped clean. He had publicly punished the man who had coerced him. At this point, he then signalled to all the other Yora that Sydney Cove could be a new meeting place. It's certainly undeniable that from about October 1790, Aboriginals and colonists mixed much more frequently. Some early historians have called this time the coming in of the Yora. I think it's perhaps wiser to call it a period of detente. The fragile peace lasted two years. At the end, um, at the end of it, um, a rather unwell Philip finally received word that he could go home. He took Ben along with him, as well as another Wongo man called Yamerawani. This was supposed to cement the fledgling relations between the two parties. Uh, the lot of them, all three, Philip, Yamerawani and Benelong, um, uh, arrive uh, back in, uh, it, it arrive in Britain in the spring of 1793. Uh, first of all, to a round of London touring that lasted uh, roughly six months. Then Benelong spent nearly a year staying near Lord Sydney's associates in rural Eltham uh, with Yamerawani, but unfortunately Yamerawani uh, at Eltham dies of a virus uh, around about May 1794. After that, Benelong lost most of his interest in his adventure and sought a passage home. Benelong finally got back in late 1795 uh, with the incoming governor, John Hunter. After that date, until just a few years ago, the dominant story was that Benelong had then, then loses his way. He couldn't reconnect with his own people, 
he fell afoul of the colonists. He was adrift between two worlds. In the 1960s, Manning Clark lamented that Benelong, quote, disgusted his civilizers and became an exile from his own people, rushing headlong to his own dissolution. Even staunch, staunch advocates for Aboriginal people, such as Bill Stanner and John Mulvaney, misunderstood him. Stanner thought him a mercurial upstart and eventually a bit of a turncoat, while Mulvaney doubted that Benelong could possibly be much honoured by his people today. Into the 21st century, Inga Tendenning felt that after England, Benelong fumed his way to an outcast's grave. He should have died earlier in the days of hope. Marcia Langton even agreed um, that he'd become bitter and alcoholic, quote, a weak, defeated man. Now, as I've intimated in the last decade, I've been marginally involved with a group of people who have reconsidered the later life sources and tried to show a different view of Benelong. This group's been led by Aboriginal leaders at the, at the Benelong Putney Project, um, especially the Madden family and Jodie Orcher. It's been partly driven by the historian Grace Carskins, the geographer Peter Mitchell, and the independent scholar Keith Smith. This revised view is starting to make its way into the various websites on uh, Benelong, just as one measure um, that I could give you. Uh, it, this is a changed view that you can see on the City of Sydney website, for example, or the City of Ryde website. All the same, though, all the same, it's notable that the most gorgeous representation of Benelong in the last few years has undoubtedly been that of the indigenous Bangara uh, dance troupe. Their 2017 production of Benelong worked really hard to portray their hero as a much more dignified character than known. And I think in many ways it's a huge success the way that they um, uh, give this revised idea of Benelong a, a, a place on stage. And yet, even Bangara chose to um, close the show with Benelong literally trapped in a box, right? Presumably doomed from his contact with British society. I don't have any images from that because they were under copyright and I didn't quite know how to get around it, uh, but it's quite easy to see um, aspects of that presentation on the web. So what is this revised view? So for the remainder of the paper, um, I want to take you through how else we might understand Benelong's later life and what the sources in this very library could add to that new understanding. The first thing that we learn from a lieutenant on the 1795 return ship is that Benelong went off around about October 1795 to, quote, a farm not far from the settlement. This may well have been already James Squire's property at Kissing Point that we know he lived on in later years. James Squire, emancipated convict, had been granted 30 acres uh, at Kissing Point just three months earlier, right, in July uh, 1795. And here's the library's print of Squire's Farm, which is today the suburb of Putney. The next year, Benelong dictated his famous letter to a Mrs. Phillips, or to, to, sorry, to a Mr. Phillips, uh, and the library holds a manuscript copy of it, very famous um, item in their collection. There has been some debate about who this Mr. Phillips was. Uh, the author Benelong in it, this is a clearly dictated uh, letter, um, the author Benelong says that it's written to Mr. Phillips, steward to Lord Sydney, uh, which many have long thought to have been some kind of underling to Lord Sydney, who was the uh, Home Office Minister at the time. Um, 
Uh, and so he was writing back to someone that he'd met while uh, living for that year in rural Eltham, which was around Lord Sydney's estate. Keith Smith, though, the scholar I mentioned earlier, believes, and I think rightly, that what Benelong really meant was Arthur Philip, um, whom Benelong understood to be a kind of steward of Lord Sydney, which I think is fair enough. Uh, additionally, there doesn't seem to have ever been a uh, Mr Phillips in the employ of Lord Sydney. And moreover, Benelong addresses in this letter to, um, to Mr Phillips, um, he, he mentions a Mrs Phillips, uh, and he says to, to Mrs Phillips, you nursed me, madam, when I was sick. You're very good, madam. Thank you, madam. I hope you remember me, madam. I, uh, I know you very well, madam. So the new Mrs Arthur Phillip, it's called Isabella Whitehead, uh, likely did meet and indeed could have spent some time nursing both Benelong and Yamarawani when they were sick, just before she married the ex-governor in uh, May 1794. The best bit of this letter, in my view, is this line. Not me go to England, no more, I am at home now. It's a clear line in the sand, a clear statement of reorientation by Benelong back to his origins. That reorientation is best seen in two ways, I think. I think it's apparent in the several large battles that he took part in after 1795 as an elder of the Wongal, uh, picking up his duties and obligations. And secondly, I think it's apparent in the many references to his leadership that are snuck into kind of sometimes unlikely commentaries, the kind of things you can find here in the library. So let's look at the battles first. Within a year, Benelong seemed to be caught up again in the normal cycle of ritualised, revenged battles. These were quellings of wrongdoing, um, elaborate theatres of semi-violence that puzzled colonists for years. An American voyager in 1798, just passing by, um, or, or had briefly been in Sydney, noted that, I quote, the Europeans in Sydney are almost as much in the dark now as they were 10 years ago with respect to the cause of these fights. Right. Colonists observe their frequency around the harbour, but they rarely seem to cotton on that only the esteemed leaders could stand in the front line to take the barrage of spears from enemy parties. They saw, for instance, that Benelong was often there in the front line, but they assumed that this meant that he was little valued by his people. In fact, it indicated the opposite. Benelong's first major battle upon return happened in 1798 with the Guiagal from Botany Bay. No, sorry, I'll just move here. This is just a range of some of the sources that I've been looking at. Um, this, this, this battle in, in 98 with the Guiagal um, uh, was spurred by the fact that a, a Cadigal friend of uh, Benelong's had been injured by the Guiagal and Benelong became part of the force who sought revenge against them, right? For fairly complex reasons, because as, as I've already intimated, he wasn't always on the best terms with the Cadigal. We know this, we know about this particular battle from the lesser read second volume um, of David Collins' History of New South Wales. Two months later, Benelong was involved in a related battle against the Camagal, who neighboured lands with the Guiagal at Botany Bay. This time, Benelong suffered a spear in his side that came out through his belly. The same American onlooker, uh, Benjamin Carter, noted the intensity of the screams of the women at this point, possibly a sign of their particular attachment to Benelong. In 1801, Benelong faced another barrage of spears to revenge the death of a woman near Warane, or Sydney Cove, again recounted in Collins. 
1805, Benelong participated in no less than three battles, one to the north, one near Baramata, uh, and one on Cadigal land, all of them reported in the Sydney Gazette. In 1806, Benelong was part of another battle against the Guiagal that some thought might actually kill him. The Sydney Gazette says his wounds, his wounds now proved nearly fatal to him. Uh, they didn't, um, but it must be said that I've not turned up any evidence of Benelong facing any battles after this date of 1806. As to the references to Benelong's leadership, um, there are more than at first suspected. There's the comment from Henry Waterhouse, uh, who had sailed on the First Fleet um, and who was still there in the later 1790s. Um, at 1797, Waterhouse writes to Lord Sydney uh, back in Britain and says that Benelong sometimes lives with Governor Philip and sometimes with his own people, right? Sometimes there, sometimes not. Uh, he, he notes that when he lives with his own people, he lives in their style. Uh, and with some chagrin, Waterhouse notes, that Benelong is still, quote, subject to all their laws, right, Yora laws, and seems to throw the spear and wield the club with all his former dexterity. Waterhouse himself saw that this behaviour, uh, he, he thought this behaviour was a sign of backsliding, but it's a hint to us that Benelong was in fact rebuilding his old life. There's also the comment from the convict Joseph Holt, who wrote in 1802 in his memoir that Benelong was by then, quote, the chief or king of his tribe, and that in fact by then he had been their king for a long time. Every tribe has its chief, uh, Holt went on to explain, who make laws, hear trials, and act as judge. That's probably not quite true, but it does appear to be the case that the tribe Benelong now headed was not the old Wongal, um, from which, uh, on, on whose land he was born, um, because they really had been um, very disordered by colonialism. But he probably headed a new conglomerate grouping situated at Kissing Point on Wallamadigal land. In 1805, the voyager Don, uh, John Turnbull, who's passing by Sydney, met Benelong a couple of times. He had not much to good, good to say about him uh, because he didn't seem to like any Aboriginals at all, it seemed, however, even amidst his dislike, Turnbull had to concede that Benelong was, I quote again, a warrior of great repute. As mentioned, I've not come up with much information about the last seven years of his life. I am presuming at the moment that he was so badly injured in that last uh, battle with the Guiagal that he was in fact incapacitated or at least forcibly retired from public activities. This would have been when he was about 42 or 43. We do know that Benelong had one surviving son uh, called Digi Digi, born around 1803 to an unknown woman. Now, many websites and articles I've noticed recently um, like to state categorically that this woman was Burong. Um, uh, Burong had also come into Sydney Cove back in 1789, at uh, the same time as Benelong. Burong in 1789 had just been a child, around about 12 or so, uh, when Benelong was about 25. Um, she had been a kind of refugee from the epidemic. Um, and like Benelong, had kind of lived in or around Sydney Cove for a few years in, the, in that early kind of First Fleet era. And of course, it would be a beautiful poetic, it, it would provide a beautiful poetic neatness to the story 
if Ben Long did wind up with Burong, um, since it would loop back his life narrative to that very momentous year, 89. In fact, though, I don't think there's any clear evidence to say that the mother of his son was Burong. I think there's been a misinterpretation of a later document from Burong's brother, who apparently claimed to be the uncle of Ben Long's son. Because of this lovely fellowship, I've been able to check that actual document in the library. And Burong's brother just said that he was an uncle, period, and not the uncle of Ben Long's son. Another source, indeed, uh, from Lachlan Macquarie's papers, suggests that Digi Digi's mother was from a north-based tribe, kind of around the, today's Richmond, uh, which frankly to me sounds more likely. Ben Long's later years were all about a turn towards the Yora, right, at large, not about being constantly tied to the people that he knew in 1789. Digi Digi was an orphan by 1815. Uh, we know that much. This was when he was around about um, 12. Benelong himself died in 1815. Uh, Another officer source declares that by 1815, uh, Benelong lay in a grave, quote, with his wife. So maybe this woman, his wife, Digi Didi's mother, had died earlier, and then Benelong's married with her, or the other way around, we just don't know. But we do know that both the parents are deceased by 1815. After Benelong died, the tributes continued, now just lurking in the sources. The first is found in a Scottish newspaper, which I have to say was ingeniously located by Smith, Keith Smith. It reports the account of a merchant who had stopped off at Sydney about three months after Benelong's death. This merchant had witnessed there the ritual battle that commemorated Benelong's life, a battle in which he says about 200 were engaged, which is really a lot uh, when you consider the kind of the thin dispersal, really, of Eora or around the harbour. Um, the merchant goes on to say, the spears flew very thick. The second tribute involves his son, Digi Digi, um, that I just mentioned. In the colonial records, Digi Digi is known as Dicky, And we know a bit about him because he, when he was about 13 or so and had been an orphan uh, for a year or two, he went to live in Lachlan Macquarie's new Parramatta Native Institution. This was a school designed to inculcate young Aboriginal people with colonial values. And here is Dickie uh, in the register of it in 1820. Several times Macquarie remarked upon Benelong's son being a pupil in this institution, right? Benelong's son, right? Being a pupil in this institution. Macquarie, throughout his governorship, had been at great pains to promote this enterprise to Aboriginal people. It really was his um, uh, sort of uh, real hobby horse that he wanted to push. Um, so it's intriguing to me that he would do so by latching onto Digi Digi's proximity to Benelong. This is not what a governor would do if Benelong was a disgraced person. It's what you do if you know that he was very well respected by his own kin. Third, there's this rather beautiful memory by the missionary Samuel Lee, a missionary who never met Benelong, but who evidently knew how much the man meant to others. In 1821, right, so eight years after Benelong's death, um, Lee met with members of the Kissing Point group. He showed a portrait of Ben Long to them, that he'd had a small little pocket portrait. When they looked upon his features, Lee recalled, they were astonished and wept aloud. It is Ben Long, they cried. He it is. He was our brother and our friend. The scene was so affecting, Lee added, that his wife and another missionary broke down and wept in sympathy with the Yora King. Fourth, we know that also in 1821, right, also eight, uh, uh, eight years later, 
uh, after Benelong's death. The Cadigal man, Nambury, died and was then buried with Benelong and his wife. So there are three people in the grave that we know of. This apparently was done according to his own explicit wishes. Like Burong, Nanbury had been one of those first Yora who'd come in to meet, uh, to live around Arthur Philip. Um, so he'd known Benelong for uh, more than 20 years. All the same, it was pretty rare for Cadigal people to be so fond of a Wongal that they wanted to share eternity with them. Moreover, Nanbury was related to Colby, the person who'd been kidnapped with Benelong, um, who definitely had a very mixed relationship with Benelong. Um, the fact that Nambry wanted to be buried with Benelong indicates to me a sign of reverence. Finally, the last and also poignant proof of Benelong's status, sorry, I should keep up with my pictures. Here is the picture of Nanbury when he was a child. So 20 years later, he's the one who requests, as a category man, to be buried with Benelong. Um, but there's one more kind of piece of um, posthumous tribute, uh, and this comes from Benelong's successor um, as the leader of the new Kissing Point group. This was Bidgie Bidgie, um, who, like Benelong, had started life as a member of another clan, in his case, the Baramadigal people. Also, like Benelong, he had lived through enough of the disordering effect of colonialism to have had to recenter, through force of circumstance, his concept of home in a new place. In 1828, 15 years after Benelong's death, another missionary observed that Bidji Bidji was, quote, a frequent visitor to Benelong's grave, uh, there amongst the orchard, uh, the orange trees in the orchard, I should add. He expresses a wish, this observer went on, to be buried by the side of his friend Benelong. Here's another, I think, and it seems to me a momentous honour to a man who was supposed for so long to be an outcast. By thinking again about Benelong's life from this perspective, instead of from the perspective of later colonial kind of morality tales, a different story emerges about this key early negotiator. Yes, he is important in Australian history for how he interacted with the first colonists. Uh, but the measure of his meaning in Australian history needs to go beyond these interactions to see his later absence from the colony as, in fact, of course, being a presence elsewhere. Benelong's presence as a leader of a group of Yora people took up close to three times as much energy in his life as did his experience with the First Fleet. Benelong's biography shows, in part, how early Australia was co-produced by Indigenous people, not just by the newcomers. Much more so, though, it shows, in another sense, that Australia always was and yet remains Aboriginal. I will close it there. Thank you very much. Now, because um, I have been a lecturer corralling undergrads for the last decade. Um, I will just take questions myself, but I am to remind you that a questioner needs to use the mic here because this whole thing is being recorded and we all need to hear the questions properly. So there's a mic there and there's a mic there, I believe. Thank you so much, Kate. That was a wonderful talk, really fascinating. Um, I think you've done a very good job of demolishing much of the, the, the kind of usual story of Benelong, the 
being an outcast, not being respected. And I was intrigued, the, even though it was vague, the story about having a second wife, which I had no idea about. Uh, because the sadness, supposedly, of you know, not having Barangaroo anymore is always part of the, the usual story. I'm wondering if you're willing to say anything about the alcoholism, which, I mean, it's in a way, you, you, one thinks, you know, there was heavy drinking was so widespread at that time that to accuse anybody of alcoholism then is, you have to wonder about it. But I'm just wondering if you would say anything about that now. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so the question's about um, this sort of ongoing um, uh, detail that's always thrown into the stories about Ben Long as a tragic figure, or someone who ends up as a tragic figure, um, and it's always to do with alcohol. Um, but I think, Angela, you've kind of said what I was, which is my usual stock answer to this question. This is a colony, this is a harbour, a wash with alcohol. Um, generally, I, I believe, from some of the uh, brief histories of drink that I've read, um, that this is probably not very strong alcohol, but we know it's ubiquitous, right? We know it's everywhere. So, um, so I, when, you, when you delve down to those kind of sources that talk about Ben Long amongst his own people and the battles that he's um, fighting, um, the kind of leadership roles that he's trying to take on, when you, get, when you get down to that granular level, there's never any particular mention um, that he has more of a problem with alcohol than anybody else. In fact, all those kind of quotes that I've just given are never surrounded by commentary about alcohol. Um, in my view, I think it's just something that gets added on to any kind of dismissive um, gesture that is then made. I should also kind of clarify that a lot of those quotes that I read out, if they come from a colonial source, that often almost always um, provide, you know, the whole paragraph is quite almost always pejorative. Right, which I did not feel the need to go into all the pejorative ways that people understood Ben Along. Um, I just wanted to bring out, you know, actually, despite all the, all the pejorative um, meanings here, what you're also telling me is that he's leading a battle. He's at the front line. He's back with his people. He's marrying, um, you know, away from the harbour, not towards the harbour. Those are the kind of facts that I wanted to bring out. Um, and when you kind of burrow into those facts, it's quite easy, actually, to not see any more. Uh, not, not, not see any emphasis on alcohol more than you might see for anyone else. Right. Um, I should just say, just to underscore, now I'm just going to be rabbiting, but I've got a little time to do it, um, that, uh, that, that in terms of alcohol and the persistence of the tragic view about Ben Long, I just saw yesterday in the library's own bookshop a brand new book of Australia, which is about rum, the distillation of Australian history, I think it's punningly called, of course, there are anecdotes, therefore, about Benelong, because this seems to um, go to hand in hand, and they're all dismissive, tragic stories of a drunken fool. Right? That's a book published in 2021. So I like to think, I mean, when I was writing this first, I thought, gosh, this story, I've been talking about this story for ages, and other people have been talking about it more, even more eloquently than me. I've got nothing new to say, um, but actually, I think the, the the Benelong trope is still out there, um, and I think it's important for various reasons to try and confront it. Yes, thank you very much. It's really interesting. I'm really puzzled um, by the so-called captivi captivity, uh, given that um, Benelong, you know, is an Indigenous person and, you know, wouldn't have been held, would know the land so well. Um, and it seems to me that the stories of um, the little house on Benelong, on Benelong Point, sorry, um, as a bribe or as a sort of trick and all of this, you know, it just doesn't seem to wash with me. 
every time I hear it. And then when I hear, when I heard you speak today, again, bringing up the fact that he's later a crossover at Man and he's perhaps present at the spearing and, and clearly implicated in some way, um, that perhaps, he, you know, he, he, he is actually from the get-go trying to position himself into a later negotiating position that he could then exploit. Um, whether it unfolded the way he planned, I guess not, because, you know, who would have thought or understood how the white people were going to be operating. But I'm just puzzled with how, what kept him there? What kept Benelong on Benelong Point for so long uh, when clearly, you know, he could run rings around the locals or the local white people? <clears throat> to my understanding locals. of, and you're referring to when Philip builds him a hut on Benelong Point, which is now where Sydney Opera House is, um, a, quite a decent um, structure made of brick uh, when a lot of the whites are not living in brick. Um, but my understanding of those years is that he barely ever lives there. This is really a, a, a stopping off point. The, the most kind of poignant um, discussions about that, that, that building is when Ben Long's there for a picnic for lunch, you know, or wants to take some of his relatives there for a bit of shelter. Um, mostly when he's around Sydney Cove in those early First Fleet years, he's living in Government House with, with Philip. He's not staying and sleeping in, in Ben Long's hut. Um, so I, I always think of it as like, you know, I don't know, a summer, a summer folly house or something. It's not really his residence and it's not something that um, should be understood as somewhere that he lives in like a white man lives in their house, right? Um, so if that's the main question. The other question was, do you think that he was already trying to position himself as a negotiator by 1790? Very clearly, I think, the, I think within weeks um, of being brought into government house, you know, he sees Colby take off. It's clearly possible. It's, you know, it's... You can tell that Arthur Phillip is not going to force someone like a prisoner to stay with him because it, it will go against the purpose of having a captive, which is to try and make friends and understand what's going on. So I don't think the, the, the restrictions are very severe. And he sees Colby take off. And in his decision, within weeks of staying, I think is evidence of him saying... I will also use this opportunity to be a go-between and figure out what's going on with these people and if they're going to go away or not. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm Felicity. I'm an Awabakal woman um, and I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, I especially like the way that you're pointing to his diplomacy and his linguistic skills because for us, Biraban was incredible um, in, you know, being... Um, in, in that sort of mode with dealing with the affront, you know, for lack of a better word, of colonisation. Um, and, yeah, Bennelong's capacities in that way are so important to Herald. Um, in terms of, I think it was Holt, the colonial report that you gave where he made the comment that he was, a, um, that he was the one that made the law and that he was a chief. Unfortunately, that's not how we are structured traditionally. There is no chief, they're all called queen, you know. Um, and our Wabigal women, which I suspect would be similar for traditional life along the area, um, the women were the ones. It was a matriarchal kind of um, structure in that way. So just to offer that the neighbouring countries can often give you that insight to check against those um, colonial accounts or um, caricatures. Yeah. 
No, thank you so much, and thank you for being here. Um, yes, I think that's where that, that's the paragraph where I said I don't think that's quite right. The detail that Holt goes into, because um, he actually also kind of suggests that you know a leader or king such as Ben Long that he thought he was uh, also kind of administers law and is acts as judge and jury and things like this is also not the way that people understand Aboriginal law or a law as existing. Um, but I am intrigued that Holt makes his comments. It goes on for a couple of pages, actually, his description that this guy is leader. Uh, for me, what's resonant is that he's identified as the most significant person. It becomes, well, the most significant person to a male watcher, anyway, um, who may not be seeing female leadership at the time. Um, it, the point for me is that it's the opposite of the outcast figure. Yeah. So thank you very much for your comment. Yes. Um, thanks very much for such a, a sensitive presentation. But I, I guess I'm thinking um, the challenge which you've clearly addressed is, is using colonial sources which are stacked against Indigenous people. And I'm wondering, it was so interesting to see the letter from Ben Long. Is it possible, are there any other documents that he wrote or dictated that we could sort of say might, might privilege that sort of evidence. That, that was the first bit. The second bit, understandably, his going to Britain is not part of your focus, but was there anything significant in terms of his experiences there which he brought back which might have influenced his later life or dealings with um, the colonists? Thank you, thank, thank you. you. There's two questions. So it's about Ben Long's other sort of first-hand um, sources that we might have and about Ben Long in Britain. Um, no, unfortunately there are no um, sources directly from, from Ben Long's hand. I mean, that, that, that is indirect as well. That's a copy of a dictated letter. Um, uh, well, I mean... <laughs> It's, it's um, you, you get used to at this, at this point never being able to have anything accessibly, you know, direct, which is what everyone yearns to have as an historian. Um, but you know, for instance, uh, recently in the last decade or so, um, it's been recovered that uh, a, a song that Ben Along and Yamarawani clearly sang in Britain um, had been the the musical notes had been written down by someone in Britain. That has been kind of transcribed back here. I mean, in some ways, we can think of this as an indirect um, hearing of Ben Long's voice. It's always this sort of at least two levels of interference um, that we have to always um, face. And that is the whole story of um, your 18th century history, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I guess my argument through Ben Long is that there's probably more there than we knew. There's more, to, there's more to say, that there's more um, material to be able to revise some unhelpful histories than we knew. The second question about Ben Long in Britain, um, thank you very much. Um, I actually got into this whole uh, story about Ben Long because I'm actually a historian of, well, I began life as an historian of 18th century Britain, and that is what I first wrote about, those two years, two and a half years that Ben Long spent in Britain. Um, and from that kind of middle point, I then went back to, uh, well, arrived actually at the history of my own country, which I've never really uh, tarried in too long. Um, but, uh, but, but in those two years, I have to say, on, on the whole, that those two and a half years are probably more significant for what they tell us about 18th century Britain than what they might tell us about, about Ben Long. I'm actually always really surprised that I think most of what Ben Long understands about the colony he gets from the settlement at Warane 
rather than, I mean, it's always kind of remarkable that he never really comes back and says much at all about Britain, which I think is actually a nice little touch, because people like David Collins are just agog waiting to hear what an Aboriginal person will tell him back of his beloved homeland, and that he will come back and say, I've changed my habits, I've changed my clothing, I've now understood that all this is wrong about how we used to live and now we have to live this way. And he doesn't do that. And Ben Long says, yeah, it was interesting and now I'm going home. And that's when David Collins is, the mo I think, in my opinion, the most influential colonial source to say, he's so annoyed at that, and says, this is backsliding, this is a return to savage life, these people aren't changeable. Because he's so disappointed that he doesn't get nice, fun news from, from home. And every time I've seen a kind of trajectory through the 19th century, through the 20th century, of this tragic tale about Ben Long, it almost always traces back to Collins, I believe. Yes. Um, Hi, thanks, Kate. Um, really great to, to meet you and to uh, follow your work on Benelong. Um, I'm a huge Benelong fan and been following your work and Keith Vincent Smith's work for many years. Um, just got probably two questions. One's a, a big, a broader question about our history. Um, how do you think that we change the default position of this nation into when work like yours and work like Keith Vincent Smith or other other work of Indigenous scholars and academics? challenges the history of this country. You know, the textbooks that I learned growing up talked about Benelong being a noble savage, a drunk, a wasted human being. Your work is challenging that. How do you think that we change the default from this nation to automatically put up barriers in that, in that narrative and dialogue? And it's even work like uh, Margaret, Cam Margaret Cameron Ash lying for the Admiralty, where she challenges what we've learnt about Captain Cook actually landing on Possession Island and claiming uh, the colony of New South Wales on Possession Island, that, that actually never happened. So those works are challenging what we've all learned for 250 years, but yet the default of this nation is to go, nah, I just don't accept that, that's wrong. It's, you're, reading, you're reading the texts of our colonists the wrong way. What we've been taught is the right thing. So how do you think we challenge that to a position where we as a nation can actually go, yeah, that might have happened. Ben Along actually was this great diplomat of the early colony and was such an iconic figure that we should want a statue of Benelong in this country. And in fact, there are no statues of Benelong in this country. Um, that we should want a statue of Bungary, that more should know of Bungary, that more should know of King Burrigan in, in Newcastle. The, how do we change the default to where we go? Actually, that is part of the story of us and the history of us. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yes, that is a question that is course at some level going to be too big for me. Um, I, I agree that change is needed. I optimistically think the change is on the horizon. I've, you know, I've been particularly interested in the last few years with delving down particularly in um, the wider implications of the Uluru Statement, uh, just to move away from the kind of constitutional and legal issues of that movement. Um, we all know that the, that, 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 the, uh, that the words, the kind of the, the distillation of the Uluru Statement is three words, voice, treaty, truth. The voice speaks to the politics that's going to have to change. The treaty speaks to the law that's going to have to change. But it's interesting to me that truth is clearly there as an important third arm of this movement. And as an historian, I think that's our business. This is, well, anyone is interested in... Um, 
in history-making's business, right? It's not just politics and the law, it's politics and the law and history. And all of those three will be changing, I think. It's very important to keep in mind that the Uluru Statement um, from the Heart um, very deliberately put that in, those, in that order. Um, on, the, on the belief, I think, that um, a voice to Parliament and then some legislative kind of moves afterwards would need to be there first before we can really truly embrace a new form of, of history, right, a, a new truth-telling. Um, it would, I think the truth-telling, the new historical research should be carrying on, of course, alongside. Um, but for Aboriginal people to then be at the vanguard of how that truth-telling is um, uh, rolled out uh, might require some actual political and legal change first. So I'm quite mindful of that, that I don't think that when it comes to Indigenous history that uh, settler historians are going to be there. They shouldn't be there at the, at the forefront, but they can keep on doing the, the groundwork in fellowships, in libraries and in dusty corridors um, so that it's there when I think that we're, we're due for a new reckoning of a general history of Australia, not just borrowing down to you know, a generation which I am mostly invested in. Thank you for your question. Right, this might be time. Is there maybe one question? No, I think we're at time. Thank you very much, guys, for being here. Um, I might catch up with you later um, afterwards if you have any other questions. Thanks.